0: glad you could be here with us this evening. I'm Victor Navasky from The Nation magazine and PEN, and uh, I'm going to speak for just a few minutes about the subject of the evening, and then you're going to hear from a series of writers who are going to read, and, and they can speak if they want to. Um, I've been asked to say a few words about the impact of the new so-called compromise on arts funding on writers, and of the, particularly of the language of the new compromise on arts funding on writers. And before I get to it, I, th- I think it's important to think about the context in which the language of any piece of legislation, whether it has to do with the arts or something else, uh, this, the sea of language which surrounds the language of legislation. And I, on the way over here, was, was thinking particularly of. Uh, Problem which we've been dealing with at the magazine, the question of national policy and covert action. And it occurred to me that uh, there was a time when we were not supposed to do covert action in this country. And then wartime uh, seemed to legitimize certain kinds of covert action. And then, about a few years ago, there started to be stories in the newspapers about how... Congress was overtly debating whether we should be giving covert action, covert aid to the contras. So we had overt covert action. And then, a few weeks ago, it was announced that the administration proposed that through the National Endowment for Democracy, we give some millions of dollars to aid the anti-Sandinista forces in their election, which I think of as covert-overt action because we're overtly doing what we used to do covertly. Of course, no one knows now that we have covert-overt action or the overtization of covert action uh, whether we're doing covert action while we're doing overt action. The point of all of that is that it's very hard to to decode the the language of public policy And I think that the arts and individual artists and writers have a special role to play uh, in that regard. The issue that, or the immediate issue that I think sparked the latest round of legislation was the Corcoran Gallery's preemptive decision to cancel a planned exhibition of Robert Mapplethorpe's photographs in order to forestall congressional indignation uh, at their content. And this, of course, brought far greater notoriety to the show than, uh, and fame that it might have had otherwise. The position uh, of many neoconservatives, but also many um, non-neoconservatives, on matters like this is that this is not the kind of art that taxpayers want to support and I'd like to quote to you briefly from an article that Arthur Danto who's the nation's art critic wrote about that view he also is a philosopher as well as an art critic and as you'll see he, he said that Hilton Kramer recently advanced this view in the New York Times And this is now the position of the United States Senate as a result of the July 26 passage of Jesse Helms' amendment banning federal support of obscene or indecent art. But that changed, as I'll explain to you. But then, uh, Danto says, but this issue could not be more obscurely framed. It is imperative to distinguish taxpayers from individuals who pay taxes as we distinguish the uniform... From the individual who wears it. As individuals, we have diverse aesthetic preferences. Uh, Kramer has little interest in supporting art that others find of great interest. But aesthetic preference does not enter into the concept of the taxpayer, which is a civic category. What does enter into it is freedom. It is very much in the interest of every taxpayer that freedom be supported, even or especially in its most extreme expressions. However divided individuals are on matters of taste, freedom is in the interest of every citizen. The taxpayer does not support one form of art and withhold support from another as a taxpayer, except in the special case of public art. The taxpayer supports the freedom to make and show art. And even when it is a kind of art, uh, e- even when it is art of a kind, this or that individual finds repugnant. So I think that's about as clear a statement of the issue as I've seen anywhere, and I think uh, it, it's a um, useful bit of background to this strange legislative history I'm about to uh, recount. And I have to say that I, am a, um, I spent this afternoon trying to find out what happened to the legislation, which is the background to this evening's readings. And it was not an easy task because the reporting on it has been obscure and confusing and partly covert at best. Uh, For example, one of the first uh, uh, notices of it in the New York Times in the story September 29th, uh, it was an AP story, was headlined, Senate Vote on the Arts, and it said, Here is the 6235 roll call by which the Senate early this morning tabled and effectively killed an amendment by Senator Jesse Helms supporting a ban on federal aid for obscene art. Well, in fact, another story dated September 29th in the Times on the front page says conferees reject Helms' proposal to restrict financing of the arts panel accepts a milder rule defining obscenity. And what the story says is that basically uh, the original legislation that Jesse Helms proposed would ban federal aid through the endowments for the arts and the humanities, both for obscene art and for indecent art. It says a lot of other things as well and it's very distressing and Uh, maybe Penn can make available the actual language of the statute there was a great uproar in the Congress about this and in the arts community and the result was that a conference committee reached a compromise and they struck out the reference to indecent but they left in the ban against so called obscene art so what does that mean? It was greeted, as, as, you, as I've suggested by the Time story, as a rejection of Helms' proposal, a victory of the arts community over th- this uh, uh, dubious proposal that federal bureaucrats be the ones to decide what's decent and what's indecent. But Jesse Helms, who, who is not as stupid as a lot of people think he is, said after the vote I won everything they've gotten a message from Congress and I think that Jesse Helms uh, you know even discounting his rhetoric was 90% right because in place of the Helms amendment the conferees as I mentioned adopted one forbidding obscene art and it what it means is that the NEA structure is going to determine what is and isn't obscene. And as far as I know, there has been, in all of the years that the question of what is and isn't obscene has been battled in the courts, there's been no definition of obscenity which has ever been accepted. It's very slippery. The courts keep changing their standard. In the new statute, there is language which in the the then proposed statute, there is language which attempts to define obscenity for the first time. Let me read you part of that language. Provided that none of the funds authorized to be appropriated for the National Endowment for the Arts or the National Endowment for the Humanities may be used to promote, disseminate, or produce materials which in the judgment of the National Endowment for the Arts or National Endowment for the Humanities may be considered obscene including, but not limited to, depictions of sadomasochism, homoeroticism, the sexual exploitation of children, or individuals engaged in sex acts and which, taken as a whole, do not have serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. Of course, according to which bureaucrat? uh, The the use of homoeroticism in there is particularly peculiar and disturbing. uh, I I called a member of the Senate committee that was directly involved and asked how it got in there, and she said to me that it it should have said homoeroticism and heteroeroticism, but that this was a sop to Senator Helms. When this panel was organized, when this evening was organized, I think, I don't know, but Gary LaMarche can can tell me this, that it was in the minds of PEN that maybe the people who attended could do something to bring to public attention this provision in the statute and the statute and maybe mobilize against it. But uh, I don't know, was that in, in your mind or not? It may have been in your mind. It may have been in my mind. Monday, I discovered this afternoon, quietly, covertly, the president signed this into law. He did it as a writer on a bill that dealt primarily with interior affairs. And again, I didn't, I didn't see that in the papers. Now I've been busy and traveling, and maybe it found its way in. But if it did, it was rather obscure. So, what can we do? Um, I think that uh, you're going to hear from other writers in that educating people as to what, as to the impossibility of. Of drawing a line and saying that you can't publish that because it's called obscene uh, is the first thing that writers and people who care about the arts can do. I think uh, fighting censorship at all levels is the second thing, and I think monitoring the council, uh, the deliberations of the National Endowment as they attempt to implement this, if they do attempt to implement it, is a third thing that can be done, but I have a, uh, a fourth thing that I want to propose this evening because there is other language in the statute, and it says that. In this again, the liberals considered a great victory, that instead of this statute immediately being implemented, an, a temporary independent commission would be appointed for the purpose of a reviewing the National Endowment for the Arts grant-making procedures, including those of its panel system, and, B, considering whether the standard for publicly funded art should be different than the standard for privately funded art. So a commission is about to be appointed. The commission shall be composed of 12 members as follows, four members appointed by the president, four members appointed by the president upon the recommendation of the Speaker of the House, Four members appointed upon the recommendation of the Speaker of the Senate, and then a couple of others in there. Now, I, again, my informant in the House tells me that the House members have already been selected covertly, that the Senate members have already been selected covertly. The President's members, however, have not yet, as far as I can tell, been chosen. And uh, so one thing it occurred to me that everyone here could do is send a little postcard to the President with your nomination, Who ought to be on this panel that's going to evaluate? And I I first thought of Barney Rossett as my nominee to be on the panel, who's responsible for publishing a lot of literature, which I think has some redeeming social value. But then it occurred to me that we have four very gifted writers and observers of the art scene who are going to speak to us this evening. So I nominate our four speakers, readers, writers this evening... As members of the panel, and I urge you all to write the president and suggest that. Now they are going to speak in the following order: Judy Bloom, Quincy Troop, Amy Tan, and Alan Ginsberg. They will introduce themselves. They will um, read and talk. Thank you.
1: You, oh maybe it 's just the people in the front row oh it 's only front row that you mean you can see, okay, great um, i can 't see you either if it makes it any better i 'm Judy Bloom, did I tell you that uh, and I excuse me oh that 's like okay. oh look, look, it goes down. this is fabulous. this is technology oh great I still can 't see you, but Um, I first met up with uh, censorship due to sexuality when I was 10. And my mother was reading John O'Hara's A Rage to Live. And she told me never, ever could I look in that book, and especially not page 206. (laughs) And from then on, my goal in life was to read that book. So imagine my delight when O'Hara showed up on my high school reading list. And I ran down to the library in Elizabeth, New Jersey, and the book wasn't on the shelf. And I said to the librarian, where's the book? It wasn't cataloged. And she said, oh, that book is locked up. And you can't have it without your parents' permission. Um, And I was angry. I was really, really angry. And I went home, and I called my aunt, who was an elementary school principal. And I told her about this. And she said, you want to read the book? Why didn't you tell me? And she brought over her copy. I stayed up half the night reading it. Um, I loved it. I thought it was a great story. I didn't know what all the fuss was about. But I was satisfied. Um, my own books for young readers uh, have been banned due to language, sexuality, questioning of authority, and something called lack of moral tone. <laughs> I think that means that you don't hit the kids over the head with what's right and what's wrong, and you let them decide on their own. But I'm not sure. Um, Dini is an early book of mine, published in 1973. It's a story about a family, about parental expectations and disappointments. It's about a mother who tries to control her daughter's lives. Dini's the beauty, Helen's the brains, she says, pigeonholing them neatly. But when Dini is diagnosed as having scoliosis, and her mother learns she's going to have to wear a body brace for the next four years, her hopes for Dini becoming a famous model are shattered. And only then does Dini begin to fight for control of her own life. Um, I'm going to read you a little bit Here's Deenie on the day she first gets her brace The crying stopped as soon as it started as fast as it started as soon as we got home I went up to my room and pulled off my clothes I stood in front of my long mirror inspecting the brace carefully from every angle. I was a disaster I Was as ugly as anything I'd ever seen damn you I shouted at my reflection damn you crooked spine I went to my desk, and I took out my scissors. Then I stood in front of the mirror again and hacked off one whole side of my hair right up to the ear. I watched as it fell to the floor. I'm crazy, I thought. I'm like the Dini in the movie. When she went crazy, the first thing she did was chop off her hair. So I threw my scissors down, and I kicked the mirror, and I hurt my foot, which got me even more mad. So I picked up the scissors, and I started cutting away at the rest of my hair. And I cut and I cut until there was a big pile on the floor and just a few loose strands hanging from my head. Because if I was going to be ugly, I was going to be ugly all the way, as ugly as anyone had ever been, and maybe even uglier. And then Ma called from downstairs, "Deni, lunch! And for some dumb reason, that made me laugh, because all of a sudden I was hungry. No matter how bad things are, people still get hungry. That's a fact. When I walked into the kitchen, Ma was bending over the sink. She said, we're going shopping first thing tomorrow. Aunt Ray said she'll drive us downtown and you can get new things for school. Daddy just sat at the table staring at me. What do you say to that, Deanie?" Ma asked, turning around. Oh, my God, Deanie! what have you done to your hair? I cut it. Why? Why did you do such a thing? Because I felt like it. I reached for my grilled cheese and tomato sandwich. Ma put her hand across her mouth and shook her head. I tried to eat my sandwich as if nothing was wrong, but I was used to bending over toward my food, and with the brace on, I couldn't bend at all, not even my head. I couldn't really see my plate. I had to lift my sandwich straight up to my mouth, and it was the same with my milk, which is probably why it spilled down my front. Daddy jumped up to help me. He said, I think you'd be more comfortable if you you pushed your chair away from the table. That way you can lean over and see your food. I'm not hungry anyway, I shouted. And in my hurry to get away from the table, I knocked over the chair. I went up the stairs as fast as I could. I slammed my bedroom door and I tried to flop down on my bed, but I couldn't even flop anymore. So I cursed. I said every bad word I knew, every single one. I yelled them as loud as I could, and then I screamed them again, spelling each one out loud. I expected Ma to really punish me for that. She can't stand to hear those words. Once, when I was a little kid, she washed my mouth out with soap just for saying the F word. In those days, I didn't even know what it meant. And from another part in the book, we're starting a new program in gym. Once a month, we're going to have a discussion group with Mrs. Rappaport. These are seventh graders, by the way. It sounds really interesting because Mrs. Rappaport asked us each to write down a question and drop it in the box on her desk. The question could be about anything, she said, especially anything we might need to know about sex. She told us not to put the names on the paper. She doesn't want to know who's asking what. And it's a good thing too, because I'd never have asked my question if I had to sign my name. I wrote, do normal people touch their bodies before they go to sleep? And is it all right to do that? I wrote that because that's what I do. I have this special place and when I rub it, I get a nice feeling. I don't know what it's called or if anyone else has it, but when I have trouble falling asleep at night, touching my special place really helps. Well, um, I'd like to read more, but we only have ten minutes apiece. Dini uh, is frequently a target of the censors because of the discussion about masturbation. And, and in this chapter, the gym teacher reassures the kids that it's normal Um, it's healthy, some people do, some people don't it's okay for boys, it's okay for girls nothing terrible is going to happen to you Um, but a lot of kids make themselves sick worrying that it might so the censors don't like that a couple of years ago I met a young librarian who was told by her school principal that Dini was unsuitable for young readers because Dini masturbates, he said it would be different if the book were about a boy I don't really believe him well, she and I had a long talk, and I told her that I wrote about um, those scenes right out of my own childhood experiences. That when I was 12, uh, I had a special place and I could get a good feeling, and I never heard the word masturbation in my life. And she said, Really? And I said, Yes. And she said, Well, can I go back and tell that to my school principal? Can I tell him that Judy Bloom masturbated? And I said, Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> But I never heard from her again, and so I don't know whether Deanie made it to the shelf in the library or whether all of my other books were quickly whisked away. Uh, I want to share with you a letter from a 12-year-old. Dear Judy, the reason I'm writing is because I have a question to ask you. Our principal, our school district, and our librarian won't let us have the book Deeney in our school. Well, I've just finished reading this book, and if there's something bad about it, I must not have read it well enough because I didn't find it. If you know why these people won't let us have the book in school, could you write and tell me? Because I'd really like to know. And a letter from a 10-year-old. Dear Judy, where is Deanie's special place? (laughs) I have to tell you, every time I go to talk at a school and it's a mixed age group, I really um, get nervous because there's always some younger child who will raise her hand in front of this large audience and say, where is Deni's special place? And I used to gulp, and now I just say, oh, come up and see me about that later, and we'll talk about it. <laughs> and uh, a special letter uh, from a 13-year-old. Dear Judy, I read your book, "Deni." You wouldn't believe how happy I was to know that I'm not the only person to do what Deni does. You're the only person who has ever mentioned anything about this, so could you please answer my questions? one how did you find out about this two is it a kind of disease three how did i know to start doing this myself four am i weird five have you received other letters saying that other people do this six approximately how many people do this seven is what i do going to harm my insides like by not letting me have children eight am i a fag I hope to hear from you very soon please my heart goes out to her because if i had been able to read about dini when i was a kid i wouldn't have worried so much i probably wouldn't have had to uh, make so many bargains with god i'll only do it twice this week if you'll do that Um, when i began to write in the late 60s i set out to write what i knew to be true about growing up i didn't know if anybody would publish it but i wasn't afraid to write it if i were that young writer today would i feel free to write from the heart, from the guts, I don't know. I might find it impossible to write honestly about kids in this climate of fear. Um, Victor gave you some suggestions. I'm going to beg you to take a stand um, and stand firm and encourage readers of all ages, including the youngest readers, to stand firm with you. Those readers are out there. They're not as vocal as the censors but they're willing to help. We have to fight to protect this freedom, and it's worth fighting for, because what are the options? Thank you.
2: primarily being a poet, they probably all think that we're all obscene anyway, you know, from the beginning. I know they think Alan and I are obscene. Uh, But what I want to talk about tonight and what I want to read tonight is um, the book that I I, um, um, collaborated with Miles Davis to write his autobiography. So I want to read the the, um, prologue to that. And I first want to just talk a little bit about that. Miles Davis is from from the Midwest, from East St. Louis, Missouri. And I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. And um, he talks in a certain way. He talks in a certain way. The way he talks is a certain way. And I I want to also go on further to say that in African-American and African culture, there's the whole idea of a concept of the tonal language. If you say something here, it it means one thing. If you say it here, it means something else. If you say it down here, it means something else. If you say it over here, it means something else, altogether all, all different. If you say it over here, it might mean five different things. So when he uses language, he's using it uh, in a tonal fashion. In the, in the selection I'm going to read to you, he uses certain words three, different, three or four different kinds of ways. And it's up to you to try to figure out what that is. I could help you, but I, I, want, you know, I want you to figure that out. Uh, But when he picked me to write this book with him, uh, which I I, was—I will say I was very honored that he picked me to write this book. I feel very privileged that Miles Davis would pick me to write this book. Um, We had a long session, and uh, he said to me, well, how do you think it should be? I said, what we don't want, Miles, is a whitewash of your life. We want the warts, we want all the bullshit, we want everything. We want everything that you did. We want everything that you did beautiful. We want everything that you did bad, foul. We want a whole thing. Uh, that's what we That's what we want, and that's what I would like to have you do, and that's what I think would be honest to do, because a lot of people know that Miles is a very complex person. He's on different kinds of levels. He won't speak to you. He might curse you out. Everybody knows the legend, so if you do something that is talking about him, and oh, he's such a nice gentleman. He did this. Everybody says so that's a bunch of bullshit. So <clears throat> I said, we're not going to do that. We're going to do an honest thing about you. We're going to do it with the watch and everything else. But we want the beauty to come through. And the other thing I want to say here is that uh, his life, although re- very complex, has been a triumph. Because at this moment in his life, he does not do anything. He doesn't use drugs. He doesn't do anything. Uh, and nobody ever talks about that in the reviews. One of the things that's interesting to me is that all the reviews focus in on this use of language, that, he, that he, the way he uses language. They all focus in on it. As if every other word, as a matter of fact, I was right before the other day, somebody called me from Philadelphia to talk to me, and they said to me, well, you know, this we can't read a sentence in this book without a four-letter word, which is ridiculous. That's not the way it is. It's just not the way it is, uh, but that's the way people perceive it. That's the way they get it in their head, way. Anyway. if you use a certain word maybe four or five times, then I guess it's all foul, you know, throughout a 500-page book, you see. So... What I would like to do tonight is to uh, read this prologue to you, and I'd like to read it in his voice, because that's what I had to get into to write this book, to kind of get into the man into his, inside of himself uh, uh, to, uh, to, to write this book. Even when people uh, love the book, which uh, 28, out of 20, 28 out of 30 people have, they still talk about this language as if America, you know, I sometimes wonder what Jesse Helms does for fun, you know, and those kind of people. I really do. I wonder what they do, you know. I mean, I wonder what they do. I mean, do they do anything bad? You know, do, do, do these people do anything bad? I mean, what, what is it? I mean, is it, is it that we expect everything to be so pristine and what? I mean, what is it? I hear kids saying everything. I mean, white and black and all kinds of kids saying all kinds of language. And uh, people, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying that's the way it is. Um, but I just wonder sometimes, uh, you know, artists, we have to create. If we write a novel, we have to write a novel. We have to, we have to write it and write it in the person the way they speak. Everybody does not speak alike. We're not saying it's bad or good. We're just saying everybody does not talk alike. They don't. And Miles is an exception. He doesn't talk like everybody else. This is Miles in his, in his own voice, and I'll try to imitate it as well as I can.
3: Listen the greatest feeling I ever had in my life with my clothes on was when I first heard Diz and Bird together in St. Louis, Missouri back in 1944 I was 18 years old and had just graduated from Lincoln High School it was just across the Mississippi River in East St. Louis, Illinois anyway when I first heard Diz and Bird and Bees Ben I said, what? what is this shit? man that shit was so terrible it was scary I mean Dizzy Gillespie Charlie Yardbird Parker Buddy Allison, Gene Ammons, Lucky Thompson and Art Blakey all together in one band and not to mention B, Billy X himself, man it was a motherfucker that shit was all up in my body, music all up in my body and that's what I wanted to hear the way that band was playing music that was all I wanted to hear it was something, and me up there playing with them. I had already heard about Dizzy and Bird, was already into their music, especially Dizzy's, with me being a trumpet player and all. But I was also into birds. See, I had one record of Dizzy's called Wouldn't You, and a record of J. Max Shane with Bird on it called Hootie Blues. That's where I first heard Diz and Bird, and I couldn't believe what they was playing. They were so goddamn terrible. Besides them, I had one record of Coleman Hawkins, one record of Lester Young, and one of Duke Ellington with Jimmy Blanton on bass that was a bad motherfucker, too. That was it. Those were all the records I had. Dizzy was my idol then. I used to try to play every solo Diz played on that one album I had by him. But I liked Clark Terry, Buck Clayton, Harold Baker, Harry James, Buddy Hackett, and Roy Eldridge a lot, too but Roy was my idol on trumpet later. But in 1944, it was Diz. Billy Eckstein's band had come to St. Louis to play at a place called the Plantation Club, which was owned by some white gangsters. St. Louis was a big gangster town back then. When he told B that he had to go around to the back door like all the other black folks, he just ignored the motherfuckers and brought the whole band through the front door. Anyway... B didn't take no shit off nobody. He would cuss and knock a motherfucker out at the drop of a hat. That's right. Forget about the playboy look and air he had about himself. B was tough. So was Benny Carter. They both would drop anybody they thought was disrespecting them in a minute. But as tough as Benny was, and he was, B was tougher. So these gangsters right there on the spot fired B and brought in George Hudson, who had Clark Terry in his band. Then B took his band across town to Jordan Chambers Riviera Club, an all-black club in St. Louis located on Delmore and Taylor, in a black part in a black part of St. Louis. Jordan Chambers, who was the most black, powerful black, black, black politician back in them days in St. Louis, just told B to bring the band on over so when word got around that they were going to play the Riviera rather than the plantation I just picked up my trumpet and went on over to see if I could catch something maybe sit in with the band so me and a friend of mine named Bobby Danzig who was also a trumpet player got to the Riviera and went on in to see if she and try and catch the rehearsals see I already had a reputation around St. Louis for being able to play by that time so the guards knew me and let me and Bobby on in The first thing I see when I got inside was this man running up to me asking if I was a trumpet player. I said, yeah, I'm a trumpet player. Then he asked me if I got a union card. So I say, yeah, I got a union card too. So the guy said, come on, we need a trumpet player. Our trumpet got sick. This guy takes me up on the bandstand and puts the music in front of me. I could read music, but I had trouble reading what he put in front of me because I was listening to what everybody else was playing. That guy who ran up to me was dizzy. I didn't recognize him at first, but as soon as he started playing, as soon as he hit the first note, I knew who he was. And like I said, I couldn't even read the music. Don't even talk about playing, but listening to Bird and Diz. But shit, I wasn't alone in listening to them like that because the whole band was just like having orgasm every time Dears or Bird played, especially Bird. I mean, Bird was unbelievable. Sarah Vine was there also, and she's a motherfucker too. (laughs) Then and now... Sarah sounded like Bird and Diz and them two playing everything. I mean, they would look at Sarah like she was just another horn, man. You know what I mean? She'd be singing, you are my first love, and Bird would be soloing, man. I wish everybody could have heard that shit. It was so bad. Back then, Bird would play solos for eight bars. But the things he used to do in them eight bars was something else. He would just leave everybody else in the dust with his playing. Talk about me forgetting to play. I remember sometimes the other musicians would forget to come in on time because they was listening to Bird so much. They'd be standing up there on the bandstand with their mouths wide open. Goddamn Bird was playing some shit back then. When Dizzy would play, the same thing would happen. And also, when Buddy Anderson would play, he had that thing, that style that was close to the style that I like to play. So I heard all that shit back in 1944, all at once. Goddamn, the motherfuckers was terrible. Talk about cooking. And you know how they was playing for them black folks at the Riviera. Because black people in St. Louis loved their music. But you know, they want their music right. So you know what they were doing at the Riviera. You know they was getting all the way down B's band changed my life I decided right then and there That I had to leave St. Louis and live in New York City Where all these bad musicians were As much as I loved Bird back then If it hadn't been for Dizzy I wouldn't be where I am today I tell him that all the time And he just laughs Because when I first came to New York He took me everywhere with him Dizzy was funny back in those days He's still funny now But back then, he was something else. Like, he'd be sticking his tongue out at women on the streets and shit, at a white woman, at white women. I mean, I'm from St. Louis, and he's doing that to a white woman, a white person. I said to myself, Diz must be crazy. But he wasn't, you know, not really. Different, but not crazy. The first time in my life, I went up on an elevator was with Diz. He took me up on this elevator on Broadway somewhere in midtown Manhattan. He used to love to ride elevators and make fun at everyone, act crazy, scare white people to death. Man, he was something. I'd go over to his house and Lorraine, his wife, wouldn't let nobody stay there too long but me. She would offer me dinner all the time. Sometimes I'd eat, and sometimes I wouldn't. I've always been funny about what I what and where I eat. Anyway, Lorraine used to put up these signs that said. Don't sit here. Then she'd be saying to Diz, what you doing with all them jab motherfuckers in my house? Get them out of here. And I mean right now. So I'd get up to leave leave too. And she'd say, not you, Miles. You can stay. But all the rest of them, they got to go. I don't know what it was she liked about me, but she did. It seems people love Dizzy so much, they used to just want to be with him, you know. But no matter who was around, Dizzy always took me every place he went. He would say, come on, go with me, little Miles. We'd go down to his booking office or someplace else. Or like I said, maybe ride up in the elevators just for the hell of it or scare the whale out of some white people. He'd do all kinds of that kind of strange, kind of funny shit. Like his favorite thing was to do was to go down where they first started broadcasting the Today Show. With Dave Garraway, when Dave Garraway was the host, it was on a studio, it was in a studio on a street level so people could watch the show from the sidewalk, looking in through this big plate glass window. Dizzy would go up to the window while the show was on the air. They shot it live, you know, and stick out his tongue and make faces at the chimpanzee on the show. Man, he would fuck with that chimpanzee J. Fred Mugg, so much, he would drive the motherfucker crazy. The chimpanzee would be screaming, jumping up and down, and showing his teeth, and everybody on the show would be wondering, what the fuck done got into him? Every time that chimpanzee laid eyes on Dizzy, he'd go crazy. But, crazy. but Dizzy was also very, very beautiful, and I loved him, and still do today. Anyway... I've come close to matching the feeling of that night in 1944 in music when I first heard Diz and Bird, but I've never quite got there. I've gotten close, but not all the way there. I'm always looking for it, listening and feeling for it, though trying to always feel it in and through the music I play every day. I still remember when I was just a kid, still a day, still wet behind the ears, hanging out, with these great musicians, my idols, even until this day, sucking in everything. Man, it was something. So that's the way the prologue reads. And I think a lot of
2: So I think that the objection is to the language. And I think that people and writers should be free uh, to write however we uh, feel. Um, I think it is imperative that we have that right in the United States. And as an African-American, I can say, you know, we have been censored so much uh, here uh, that <clears throat> I think it is definitely if they start to chip away at that stone, they'll take uh,
4: everything. Thank you.
5: of you have read The Joylette Club, you may be wondering why I'm here. Because my book has been variously described as the kind of book you can give to your mother, um, or even your grandmother. In fact, um, one newspaper quoted the only sex scene in the book as, from the beginning, I was always afraid he would climb on top of me and do his business. And they said, that's as steamy as it gets. Um, actually you'd be surprised. There have been three occasions already in which magazines wanted to reprint my stories if only I would take out that offensive word or that offensive line. So it happens even to uh, those books you can give to your mother. Um, What I'd like to do um, is read some books, um, read from some books that influenced me as a writer. Um, I know that when I was told that these magazines wanted to censor my stories, I had the same reaction that I had when I was a child, and I was told I was not allowed to read that book. I was the daughter of a Baptist minister, and after my father died, the whole church took it upon themselves to guide me to the right books and to steer me away from the wrong ones. Of course, the book that I was allowed to read every day was the Bible, and so I'd like to start off by reading a passage from the Bible. This is about Lot and his two daughters. And the firstborn said unto the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man in the earth to come in unto us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve seed of our father. And they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father And he perceived not when she lay down, nor when she arose. And it came to pass on the morrow that the firstborn said unto the younger, Behold, I lay yesternight with my father. Let us make him drink wine this night also, and go thou in and lie with him, that we may preserve seed of our father. And they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he perceived not when she lay down, nor when she arose. Thus were both the daughters of Lot with child by their father. The second book that I'd like to read from is a book that was the first book that I ever bought, actually, and I had to buy it twice because it was taken away from me twice. Um, it is, of course, *The Catcher in the Rye*. You should um, imagine me uh, reading. Since this is a first person. You should imagine me as a, a young boy with pimples on my face. If you want to know the truth, I'm a virgin. I really am. I've had quite a few opportunities to lose my virginity and all, but I've never got around to it yet. Something always happens. For instance, if you're at a girl's house, her parents always come home at the wrong time, or you're afraid they will. Or if you're in the back seat of somebody's car, there's always somebody's date in the front seat. Some girl, I mean. There's always wants to know what's going on all over the whole goddamn car. I mean, some girl in front keeps turning around to see what the hell's going on. Anyway, something always happens. I came quite close to doing it a couple times, though. One time in particular, I remember. Something went wrong, though. I don't even remember what anymore. The thing is, most of the time, when you're coming pretty close to doing it with a girl, a girl that isn't a prostitute or anything, I mean, she keeps telling you to stop. The trouble with me is I stop. Most guys don't. I can't help it. You never know whether they really want you to stop or whether they're just scared as hell, whether they're just telling you to stop so that if you do go through with it, the blame will be on you, not them. Anyway, I keep stopping. The trouble is, I get to feeling sorry for them. I mean, most girls are so dumb and all. After you neck them for a while, you can really watch them losing their brains. You take a girl when she really gets passionate. She just hasn't got any brains. I don't know. They tell me to stop, so I stop. I always wish I hadn't after I take them home, but I keep doing it anyway. I always wanted to be the girl that didn't tell Holden to stop. (laughs) The last book I'd like to read from actually was my favorite book in childhood. And it was a book that caused me to go through spiritual counseling many times with different ministers. And actually, one of the ministers, I found out a half year later, ran off with a 16-year-old girl. This book is the famous Kraft-Ebbing text, written turn of the century, and it's called Psychopathia Sexualis, and it's very proud to find that my publisher, Putnam, published it again in 1965, but I'm going to read a preface first from a 1939 edition, and this is the note from the publishers. The sale of this book is strictly limited to members of the medical and legal professions, To teachers of and postgraduate students in the subject, educational institutions, libraries, book jobbers, and bookstores, and not to the general public. Since this is an event open to the general public, I take great pride in reading from this book tonight. I also think this is the kind of book that serves oftentimes as the guidebook to people like Jesse Helms. So I would like to read and dedicate Case 229 to Jesse Helms. In a provincial town, a man was caught in intercourse with a hen. He was 30 years old and of high social position. The chickens had been dying one after another, and the man causing it had been wanted for a long time. To the question of the judge as to the reason for such an act, the accused said that his genitals were so small that coitus with women was impossible. Medical examination showed that actually the genitals were extremely small. I'd like to read a I'd like to read a whole book about this man and his chickens. Thank you.
4: Ginsburg is my name. i uh, begin with a um, little quotation from Senator Helms on uh, the Mapplethorpe. There's a big difference between the Merchant of Venice and a photograph of two males of different races in an erotic pose on a marble tabletop. New York Times, (laughs) July 28th, 1989. Heritage Foundation Policy Review, about 1980, had a two-part sequence of critiques of the NEA grants for poetry, combing through with a fine-tooth comb for phrasing which they considered obscene. It was written by Dinesh D'Souza, the founder of the Dartmouth Review, uh, a a extremist uh, 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 non-student newspaper at Dartmouth, which continues, uh, later a White House policy consultant. Um, The Heritage uh, Foundation is funded by, uh, originally by Joseph Coors, uh, Alcohol. It prepares policy papers and the legislative language, which is prepackaged and given over to Senator Jesse Helms for various of his censorship enterprises, including the FCC censorship law, which went into effect about a year ago at the end of the Reagan administration, signed into law which forbid the uh, broadcast of, quote, indecent unquote, language 24 hours a day, thereby eliminating the 30-year tradition of broadcasting my own poetry over Pacifica and other uh, uh, network and other student um, uh, radio stations. And so my own poetry, including Howell, has been now effectively been uh, chilled and bumped off the air. Um, For Senator Helms... Uh, His uh, fort is, uh, he's the uh, senator from North Carolina. Uh, His particular preoccupation is is spreading addiction to uh, nicotine. Uh, He's intervened a number of times as a member of the Foreign Relations Committee to make sure that countries trying to uh, limit the spread of nicotine addiction, which have forbidden advertisement of nicotine, allow advertisement and accept American uh, tobacco, which is uh, uh, sometimes uh, forbidden and is also, without consulting majority of taxpayers, uh, used taxpayers' money to subsidize the local nicotine narcotic crop in his own state. So in response to a modern language association request for texts opposing the New Helm censorship amendment uh, as a uh, this, as a uh, honorary fellow of the MLA my text was as follows sent to all members of the Senate committees and House committee Senate and House committee that was dealing with it dear X regarding Senator Jesse Helms' arts control amendment to fiscal 1990 Interior Agency Appropriation Bill. This arts censorship rotgut originated in the beer-soaked bucks of Joseph Coors, was moonshined in Heritage Foundation think tanks, and is peddled nationwide by notorious tobacco cult Senator Jesse Helms. These alcohol nicotine kingpins have the insolence to appoint themselves arbiters of public morality. Legal narcotics pushers wrapped in the flag, they threatened to give the needle to any politician opposing their takeover of hitherto culturally free turf in America. After 30 years broadcast liberty, my poem Howl was bumped off the air in public 1988 by a Heritage Foundation Senator Helms FCC 24-hour-a-day ban on mystific indecency. These hypocrites have muscled their way into museums already and plan to extend their own control addiction to arts councils, humanities programs, universities. How long will Congress, public, and arts be held hostage to this cultural mafia? So I would like to present three samples of art or writing which would be banned from the air, of course, of uh, the previous censorship, and also would be prohibited uh, by virtue, presumably, of uh, the subjective judgment of obscenity by any of the commissioners appointed by the president, or certainly would be questionable as to whether any arts commission would dare give money. So the first two uh, 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 texts are my own, and I'll complete it with someone else's the first is in dedicated to Senator Helms a non-smoking anti-commercial don't smoke 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 it's a nine billion dollar capitalist joke don't smoke don't smoke don't smoke don't smoke smoking makes you cough you can't sing straight you gargle on saliva and you vomit on your plate. Don't smoke, don't smoke,
6: don't smoke, 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 nope, 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 that nicotine, it's too obscene, don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke, you smoke in bed, you smoke on the hill, you smoke till you're dead, you smoke in hell, don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke, dope, 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 the official dope, Nope, dope, 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 don't smoke, 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 don't don't smoke, don't, 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 dope, dope, dope. The official dope, don't smoke, don't smoke. You puff your fag, you suck your butt, you choke and gag teeth full of crud. Don't smoke, 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 smoke. smoke. Don't, 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 dope, 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 don't smoke. You pay your two bucks for a deathly pack. Trust your bad luck and smoke in the sack. Don't smoke, don't smoke, nicotine, 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 nicotine. It's too obscene. Nope, nope, dope, dope, dope. don't smoke. That da- dope, 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 the official dope. $275 in greens. What Madison Avenue gets... Tadvertise nicotine and hook you, new school brats. Don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke. Nope, 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 nope. Hoax, 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 hoax. Black magic pushes dope. Sexy chicks in cars. America loses hope And smokes and drinks in bars. Don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke. Choke, 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 choke. Don't smoke, don't smoke, dope, 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 The official dope. Nine billion bucks a year. A southern industry by Senator Joe Fear, who runs the CIA. Dope smokes, dope smokes, don't smoke, cloak and dagger, where there's smoke, there's fire. Don't smoke, don't smoke, 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 dope, 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 dope. Nine billion bucks for dope. Approved by time and life, America loses hope. The president will smoke his wife. Don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke, hope, 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 hope. Oh please, oh please don't smoke, don't smoke, oh please, oh please, oh please, I'm calling on my knees. Don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke, boop, boop, dope, 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 the official dope, nope, 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 nope. 24 hours in bed and give your girlfriend head, then you won't want a fag or ever more a drag. Don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke, ho, 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 ho. 24 hours in bed and give your boyfriend head. Put something in your mouth like skin, not cigarette, filth. Suck tit, suck tit, suck tit, suck tit, suck it, suck it, suck 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 shit, suck shit, suck prick, suck prick, suck prick, suck, prick. Suck, prick suck, clit, suck clit, suck clit, suck clit, suck clit. But don't smoke shit. No, 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 no. That nicotine—it's too obscene. Don't smoke. Don't smoke that nicotine. Suck cock, suck click, suck shit. But don't smoke shit. No, 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 no. Don't smoke. No, no, don't, no. don't smoke. No, smoke. Don't smoke. Don't smoke. Don't smoke. Don't smoke. Don't smoke. Nope, no, nope, no, nope, no, nope. no. Make believe you're sick. Stay in bed and lick your cigarette habit greed. One day's all you need indeed, indeed. Smoke weed. Smoke weed, put something green in between, but don't smoke shit, nope, 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 nope. The official shit, the official dope. that nicotine. It's too obscene. Don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke. Don't smoke, 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 don't smoke, don't smoke.
4: Part of the problem is the chilling effect, uh, an anecdote now. I'm working with Philip Glass, the composer, on an evening of uh, theater, poetry and music, and he originally wanted to title it The Fall of America, a title of a book which won the National Book Award in 1974. We had a meeting with the producers the other day, <coughs> the money people from the Spoleto Festival, and the general consensus was, it was The Helms Amendment coming into place, perhaps we could change the title so it wouldn't be so unpatriotic and maybe call it hydrogen jukebox instead of the fall of America. This was a consideration of the people who were thinking of applying for NEA grants for the production. So you can see that the sexual um, repression, as Wilhelm Reich pointed out, is the... uh, get people by the balls, and then you've got them (laughs) where you want them, uh, as far as other mentation. So there's already been a uh, a fallout of timidity, fear, uh, intimidation, uh, or as Helms uh, is quoted uh, by the editor of The Nation, Uh, I've already won, I've made my point, he said. As you may remember, it was an individual act in Tiananmen Square, the fellow standing in front of the tanks. And there was another less advertised uh, uh, gesture of one Chinese student saying the equivalent of I am that am, stark naked climbing up on, on the Statue of Liberty. I don't know if you've heard about that. The Chinese students said that the, um, much of the student movement was based, inspired on the po- by the poetry of the uh, Shanghai and Beijing poets among them Xu Ting and Dao, who themselves uh, felt there was some contribution of, to their own inspiration by the American poetry movement of the 50s, including my own poem, Howl. In the preface to the 30th anniversary edition, I made another relatively charming prophetic remark. Quote, In publishing Howell, I was curious to leave behind after my generation, an emotional time bomb that would continue exploding in US consciousness in case our military industrial nationalist complex solidified into a repressive police bureaucracy. As a sidelight, I thought to disseminate a poem so strong that a clean Saxon four letter word might enter high school anthologies permanently and deflate tendencies toward authoritarian strong arming, evident in late later fifties neoconservative attacks on Kerouac's heartfelt prose and Burroughs's, Burroughs's, William Burroughs's poetic humor. So I'll read from a censorable uh, passage from Howell, the Moloch section. which though judged not obscene by the courts, uh, is still censored on uh, radio by chilling effect. What sphinx of cement and aluminum bashed open their skulls and ate up their brains and imagination? Moloch, solitude,
6: filth, ugliness, ash cans and unobtainable dollars, children screaming under the stairways, boys sobbing in armies, old men weeping in the parks. Moloch, Moloch, nightmare of Moloch. Moloch, the loveless, mental Moloch. Moloch, the heavy judger of men. Moloch, the incomprehensible prison. Moloch, the cross cross-bone, soulless jailhouse and congress of sorrows. Moloch whose buildings are judgment, Moloch the vast stone of war, Moloch the stunned governments, Moloch whose mind is pure machinery, Moloch whose blood is running money, Moloch whose fingers are ten armies, Moloch whose breast is a cannibal dynamo, Moloch whose ear is a smoking tomb. Moloch, whose eyes are a thousand blind windows. Moloch, whose skyscrapers stand in the long streets like endless Jehovah's. Moloch, whose factories dream and croak in the fog. Moloch, whose smokestacks and antennae crown the cities. Moloch, whose love is endless oil and stone. Moloch whose soul is electricity and banks. Moloch whose poverty is the specter of genius. Moloch whose fate is a cloud of sexless hydrogen. Moloch whose name is the mind. Moloch in whom I sit lonely. Moloch in whom I dream angels. Crazy in Moloch. Cocksucker in Moloch, lack love and manless in Moloch, Moloch who entered my soul early, Moloch in whom I am a consciousness without a body, Moloch who frightened me out of my natural ecstasy, Moloch whom I abandon. Wake up in Moloch, light streaming out of the sky, Moloch, Moloch, robot apartments, Invisible suburbs, skeleton treasuries, blind capitals, demonic industries, spectral nations, invincible madhouses, granite cocks, monstrous bombs. They broke their back-lifting Moloch to heaven, pavements, trees, radios, tons, lifting the city to heaven which exists and is everywhere about us. Visions, omens, hallucinations, miracles, ecstasies gone down the American river. Dreams, adorations, illuminations, religions, the whole boatload of sensitive bullshit. Breakthroughs over the river, flips and crucifixions gone down the flood, highs, epiphanies, despairs, ten years animals, screams and suicides, minds, new loves, mad generation down on the rocks of time real holy laughter in the river. They saw it all, the wild eyes, the holy yells. They bade farewell. They jumped off the roof to solitude, waving, carrying flowers, down to the river, into the street.
4: Last. I'd like to read two pages or so of William Burroughs' Naked Lunch, a uh, manuscript I received in the mail one day in 1954 in help type, which I think is one of the great political statements of this half century. Dr. Schaefer speaking with Dr. Benway. Schaefer is not listening. You know, he says impulsively, this is William Seward Burroughs' text, you know, he says impulsively, "I think I'll go back to plain, old-fashioned surgery. The human body is scandalously inefficient. Instead of a mouth and anus to get out of order, why not have one all-purpose hole to eat and eliminate? We could seal up nose and mouth, fill in the stomach, make an air hole direct into the lungs, and where it should have been in the where it should have been in the first place." Doctor Benway, why not one all-purpose blob? Did I ever tell you about the man who taught his asshole to talk? His whole abdomen would move up and down, you dig, like farting out the words. It was unlike anything I ever heard. This ass talk had a sort of gut frequency. It hit you right down there like you gotta go. You know, when the old colon gives you the elbow and it feels sort of cold inside and you know all you gotta do is turn it loose? Well, this talking hit you right down there, a bubbly, thick, stagnant sound, a sound you could smell. This man worked for a carnival, you dig? And to start with, it was like a novelty ventriloquist act. Real funny too at first. Real funny too at first. He had a number he called the Better Old. That was a scream, I tell you. I forgot most of it. it. Was clever. Like, oh, I say, are you still down there, old thing? Nah, I had to go to relieve myself. After a while, the ass started talking on its own. He would go in without anything prepared, and his ass would ad lib and toss the gags back at him every time. Then it developed sort of teeth like little raspy incurving hooks and started eating. He thought this was cute at first and built an act around it. But the asshole would eat its way through his pants and start talking on the street, shouting out it wanted equal rights. (laughs) It would get drunk, too, and have crying jags. Nobody loved it. And it wanted to be kissed the same as any other mouth. (laughs) Finally, it talked all the time, day and night. You could hear him for a block screaming at it to shut up and beating it with his fist, and sticking candles up it, but nothing did any good, and the asshole said to him, it is you who will shut up in the end, not me, because we don't need you around here anymore. I can talk and eat and shit. After that, he began waking up in the morning with a transparent jelly like a tadpole's tail all over his mouth. The jelly was what scientists call undifferentiated tissue, which can grow into any kind of flesh on the human body. He would tear it off his mouth, and pieces would stick to his hands like burning gasoline jelly and grow there, grow anywhere on him a, a Magaba of it fell. So, finally, his mouth sealed over, and, a whole head would have, and the whole head would have amputated spontaneously, except for the eyes you dig. That's one thing the asshole couldn't do was see. It needed the eyes, but the nerve connections were blocked and infiltrated and atrophied so the brain couldn't give orders anymore. It was trapped in the skull, sealed off. For a while, you could see the silent, helpless suffering of the brain behind the eyes. Then finally, the brain must have died because the eyes went out and there was no more feeling in them than a crab's eye at the end of a stalk. That's the sex that passes the sensor, squeezes through between bureaus because there's always a space between in popular songs, in grade B movies, giving away the basic American rottenness, sporting out like breaking boils, throwing out globs of that undifferentiated tissue to fall anywhere and grow into some degenerate, cancerous life form, reproducing a hideous, random image. Some would be entirely made of penis-like erectile tissue. Others, viscera barely covered over with skin, clusters of three and four eyes together, crisscross of mouth and asshole, human parts shaken around and poured out anywhere they fell. The end result of complete cellular representation is cancer. Democracy is cancerous, and bureaus are its cancer. A bureau takes root anywhere in the state, turns malignant like the Narcotic Bureau, and grows and grows, always reproducing more of its own kind until it chokes the hosts if not controlled or excised. Bureaus cannot live without a host, being true parasitic organisms. A cooperative, on the other hand, can live without the state. That's the road to follow, the building up of independent units to meet the needs of people who are participating in the functioning of a small unit. A bureau operates on the opposite principle of inventing needs to justify its existence. Bureaucracy is as wrong as cancer, a turning away from the human evolutionary direction of infinite potentials and differentiation and independent spontaneous action to complete parasitism of a virus." Bureaus die when the structure of the state collapses. They are as helpless and unfit for independent existence as a displaced tapeworm or a virus that has killed the host. In Timbuktu once, I saw an Arab boy who could play a flute with his ass, and the fairies told me he was really an individual in a bed. He could play a tune up and down the organ, hitting the most erogenously sensitive spots, which are different on everyone, of course. Every lover had his special theme song, which was perfect for him, and rose to his climax. The boy was a great artist when it came to improving new combines and special climaxes, some of them notes in the unknown, tie-ups of seeming discords that would suddenly break through each other and crash together with a stunning, hot, sweet impact.